Welcome to the State of the Markets Oil Market Special. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by financial analyst Zach Meir. And our very special guest is Paul Vonk, Managing Director of Angus Energy. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, Paul. Hello, Paul. <laughs> Hello, Paul. Hello, Zach. Uh, thanks for having me. You're very welcome, Paul. Now, just for the benefit of the listeners, could you just tell us a little bit about Angus Energy? Yeah, with pleasure. I'm the uh, managing director of uh, of Angus Energy, uh, which is a UK company focusing really on on opening up the uh, the wheel basin in southern England, uh, which we're really at an exciting time with at the moment. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Paul. Myself, I started off as uh, as an engineer in the oil field back in the day, straight after university, as a uh, wireline engineer. Uh, basically, yeah, that is the people that, that that take a measurement of what is down in the well uh, after people after oil companies have, have drilled the well to see what's there, whether they've actually found oil or gas or not. Uh, did that for a couple of years, uh, primarily in Northern Africa, Algeria, Egypt, those type of countries, always onshore. And then um, after a couple of years, uh, did an MBA, went into banking, especially specifically focused on uh, on oil and gas. You know, oil and gas corporate finance. Uh, doing IPOs for oil and gas companies, doing M&A. And then uh, in around 2013, 2014, I moved to the other side of the table, worked for oil and gas companies directly, and then got involved with Angus Energy. And around 2016, after the horse well test, uh, and that flowed you know, with really incredible rates for the, for the first time uh, onshore UK from this hybrid layer, we thought that we were really onto something special here. And then we IPO'd Angus Energy, and here we are now. I've got a I've got a question for uh, Paul uh, just to dial back a bit on what he he said. Um, you know, you you obviously did your did your studies, you did your exams. You know, you could have been an investment banker just sitting in a ivory tower somewhere. Why did you decide to go for the wild west for the for you know the oil and gas sector, which can be very binary in outcomes? Why you know are you like a sort of an adrenaline junkie? Or, you know, you like risk. Or, What's that? What's it? What is it in your character that's taken you to this particular area? It's well, it's, it's a fundamental industry to, to humanity. Let's let's be honest about that. And when there, there's two components to your question, I believe one is why did I move into oil and gas in the first place when I, you know, straight after after uni? Well, I studied mining and petroleum engineering. So already at high school, I was attracted to this industry because one of the things it's, it's worldwide. And you had the choice when you were younger, you know, you could you could you could travel the world with a backpack and you know wash dishes and and and, and wait or tables, or you could actually see the world, you know, with a paycheck. And I was Fantastic. like, hey, that is not a bad idea. Let's go into you know petroleum engineering. And when I was there, you find out it's such a great industry run by you know you meet such wild and interesting uh, characters in there, and it's good. You know, it's a fundamental piece of of what makes us great at the moment. It is you know providing energy. And, and, and while you're doing it, it can be really exciting because one, one of the companies that I, I worked for as a wireline engineer back in Algeria, that did a massive gas discovery. And, uh, and, and that really changed you know, the outlook of the company, the, the financial position of everybody that invested in that company. And, and, and that was great. And I was like, hey, I should keep this in the back of my mind. I should do something about that in the future if I've actually you know, learned the additional skills about finance. And uh, that happened in around 2014 and made a step to the other side. Well, speaking of skills, uh, the other issue which, uh, which we'll, we'll obviously talk about with Angus and with the wheel basin and everything else is that you've actually studied the subject. Uh, you know, you're well qualified in the whole, you know, presumably on a geological basis and all the other, you know, complicated bases, uh, bases if that's the right word, uh, that the oil and gas uh, sector works. 
And uh, on a day, ironically, though, on a day to day basis, you are um, coming to blows, uh, at least in verbally, let's say, with people who know uh, who obviously aren't uh, you know, qualified in this area. They're just investors. Uh, but they put in their 500 quid or five grand or 50 grand or whatever they put in. Um, they don't have any expertise, but they're telling you what's there and what's not there. How do you feel about that? <laughs> uh, well, to put that into perspective, I, uh, I, I speak the language of the, uh, of, the, of the technical side of the, of the rocks and everything, but let's not underestimate the, the knowledge base that you really need to have. That's why at Angus Energy, we have a team where people are sitting there that started out of, with BG you know, back in the 60s that, that really understand the subservice in the rocks. So you need to have a long, you know, experience before you can actually make judgments about whether the oil and gas is there. But what I'm doing, I'm, I understand their language. I, I hear what they're saying. And if they're confident and they're excited, it's my job to then communicate that to everybody else that didn't have the luxury of, you know, understanding that language. So it is, um, well, it's, it's, it's my job to keep make it as simple as possible. And, and most importantly, after we promise something that we're going to do, actually deliver. And that is uh, indeed uh, the project that we're doing with Angus Energy. And as we can see in Balkan, you know, a lot, a lot of skepticism beforehand. And uh, the test results were fantastic. Before we get on to specifics about Angus Energy, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what onshore production is and what why you do onshore production. Onshore production is, is, is great because you can actually walk to the site uh, we ourselves we take the train to 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 our sites in southern england now the major benefit oil is is found subsurface usually it's found you know thousand meters or deeper below the rocks uh the uk has got, had a fantastic history and still does uh, of offshore production but offshore production is complicated you need a very large organization you need a lot have a lot of personnel everything that you do is is is, is much more expensive than onshore onshore is nice in the sense that you can touch it, you can bring it there, so the logistics costs are, are, are much smaller. And what we're doing with Angus, we have these sites where um, they've already been drilled you know, decades ago. So the, the UK has got a long history of onshore production, which is basically under the radar, people are not aware of it, because you don't see the sites. And what we're doing is we're taking these old sites, we've refurbished them, we make them all compliant with all the future standards. And then what we're doing now is we're gonna produce oil from a layer that has been overlooked in the past. So we can do that for a really, really low cost. I think the sidetrack of the well that we're gonna switch on shortly, the Brocken well, we drilled it for about a million pounds, you know, a couple hundred thousand additions to to, 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 to all the periphery around it. So for a million and a half pounds, we are looking at a very good producer in the future. And well, I, I don't know what the latest rates are for offshore drilling, but I, I'd be surprised you can do anything for less than 20 million. And that is just having a well, let alone put it into production. It's much more complicated. So it's a fraction of the cost offshore. That is the real attraction about onshore. So for people who are unfamiliar with this process, what's the difference between what you're doing and, and fracking, for example? Well, fracking is the method that has been hugely successful, primarily in America where people have drilled a well, you know, usually a conventional drilling rig and a drill bit, and they put, you know, huge amount of fluids with, with sand in it to basically break the rock, fracture the rock, uh, have, have, have sand in it. So they call it propens, 
to keep those fractures that you've created by putting huge amount of pressures in the well to keep them open and that way release the gas and the oil that is embedded in that shale that, that it, it, it's actually in there and with the fracture you keep it open which is a, a technology that we don't have to deploy in our assets at all because what we're looking at in southern england the wheel basin that is a fractured reservoir the nature has already fractured for us over millions of years. So the only thing that we're doing is we're drilling a conventional well, as people have been drilling for the last hundreds, hundred years. And when we drill that well, we go through the fractures that are already there. And then we open a tap basically on surface and it flows naturally. So we don't have to do any, any fractures. We don't have to invade the rock. We don't have to break the rock. It just flows naturally. Yeah, I just wanted to get on to, um, I mean, obviously it's one of those issues where people, you might say, I'm not my brother's keeper, but you are the resident oil expert amongst the three of us um, at the moment. <laughs> With UK oil and gas, there was an announcement yesterday, which if you read it, it seems to be quite positive. Uh, but according to some commentators, it's a complete sort of disaster. What's the reality of UCOG in your mind or from your opinion, Paul? Well, we saw, we've been following, you know, their activity closely because we're talking here about the Horsell well, which is a carbon copy of our, our Brockham field, which is about five, six miles to the west. Um, Angus Energy was the company that originally drilled the Horsell well. And then when the flow test results came out in 2016, we're like, hey, the only reason why it flowed that much uh, was that we're dealing with a fractured reservoir because the rock itself is too tight. We didn't have a lot of money at the time. Uh, we had a bad capital structure. So we sold out of Horsfield because we have a 65% interest in the Brockham field, which has a production license, which is very important, you know, seven miles next door. So we thought, you know, looking at this basin, we're not looking at a structural trap. That's in, in the old days, you know, you, you find a pocket of oil and then, you know, you're really happy if you're that oil company because you've got that pocket of oil and you can suck it dry and then and you've made a lot of money. In this case, if we're dealing with an hybrid reservoir, and, and I think that's it's quite important for people to understand is that a hybrid reservoir is, is the same as in, Amer in America, what you would call an unconventional reservoir. It means that this horizontal layer that's under the ground, you can get oil from everywhere. It doesn't, doesn't matter where you are. You can, you can drill a hole and, and, and the same results will come out of it because the geology is the same. We're not looking for a trap. Unconventional means it's, it's everywhere. So you're also implying that you know, Brockham is better than the Horse Hill. Is that correct? Well, no, that, that's, 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 that's never what we said. What we said is we think it's the same geology. It's the same carbon copy. Now, yeah. what happened is that the, um, that the well, the Horse Hill well, was never drilled as a Kimmeridge producer. And they're accessing uh, two Kimmeridge layers. That is the limestone layers that we, that we originally accessed when we perforated. So they've just announced results for KL3. And they're now going to the layer above it, they call it KL4. What we think is that that, that, that Kimmeridge layer, which is about 400 meters thick at Horsell and about 400 meters thick at Brockham, we believe there's a 200 meter natural fractured layer in there. And it's all the same reservoir. It's literally the same oil column. So our idea is why perforate a single layer of limestone and then another single layer? Why don't we just perforate the whole 200 meter section and flow from it and for future wells see which layers are most productive. So we, we don't think it's better. We think that the side track that we've drilled at Brockham is able to access a much larger portion of the Kimmeridge than they've been able to do at Horsham. So like, it's like they say, it's easier rather than better. Correct. Uh, the other point is obviously the market was slightly disappointed with uh, you know, UK oil and gas yesterday. I mean, do you have any explanation from that, from your sort of a, a geological or a, let's say an informed point of view? 
I think there's two elements to that. One is the investor base, which makes it a little bit more complicated. And the other one is where were the steep, both companies start from? And I think we're all very well aware how Horsell was, you know, sold to the market back in the day as the get with gusher, you know, really, really high rates. And, and the initial rates, let's be honest, aggregate rates of 1300 barrels a day, fantastic. You know, that hasn't happened onshore in a long time. But initial rates are usually the highest rates that you start off with. It's very rare that you can produce higher unless you get, a, get more access to the reservoir. If you simply use the same zone, then you have natural depletion rates like every oil and gas well has. So having the you know, assumption that you can outperform your initial rate, it's, it's highly unlikely. And I think that should have been squashed by the, by the company straight away. And you have to look at the long-term economics of this field. So when the results came out yesterday, well, my compliments, absolutely fantastic job for UCOC. And the market might not appreciate fully how good these results are, because if you're looking for a thousand barrel a day, well, take a step back. What have they actually said? They said, we've produced from one single layer, 10,000 barrels in total over about a month, which equates to about 342 barrels a day. Well, then take a step back, look at the economics. I already told you, this is a... Un, it's a hybrid reservoir. So wherever you sink this well, you should be able to replicate this result. This is, is our hypothesis. Right. So, so but I mean, just getting the, the whole wheel basin thing, I'm sure it was obviously after five years, is, you know, this, this story is going on and on a bit. Um, it Doesn't it look like, can't you say it even at this stage, that whoever's producing there is not going to be producing more than three, four, five hundred barrels a day on a consistent basis, and therefore any oil company there is going to be a small oil company or small to medium oil company, maybe worth two, two or 300 million at the most, it's not going to be the next Shell or BP or anything else like that, is it? Or even Premier Oil? Well, if, if you look at it from a single side, then you're, you're, you're correct. I, I, at the wholesale side, they have room for a couple of wells. So, you know, let's take an arbitrary number, let's say 10 wells. They produced from this single layer, assume that's the only layer that they will flow from, ignore any other layers that they could potentially produce from in the Kimmeridge. Then those 10 wells, by the time you drill it, some will have depleted, you'd be producing 1,500 barrels a day from this side. Well, 1,500 barrels a day in the in the tax regime in the UK, that would already make you, what is it, two, 250 million pound company, market cap, single side. But the wheeled companies, and us among them, it's not going to be about the single side. There's many multiple sites that we can regenerate, reuse, and, and, and replicate that. So I think the market can be in excess of that because right now people are looking at the results of a single well, and in the case of, uh, of Horsell, from a single zone, and, and tying that to the market cap. But you have to look at the future development program in order to come up with your market cap. So the currently market cap is 100 million, so it could still be three, four, five hundred million uh, with a fair wind behind it, let's say. Yeah, but for that, what you also need is you need the structural change in your uh, investment base. What you need, you need to have institutional investors in there. Because like you say, you, we, we have a, a great following from the from the retail investors, and, and, and so does UCOC, for that matter. Any any explanation why the, the, the institutions are not in yet? Is it because they want to see more? They're still waiting? The placing, we got a fully way to institutional investors. So we were very happy that we did the whole placing. Uh, with uh, with institutional investors, about three quarters of it to to you know the biggest institutional investors in the the smaller mid cap space in the UK. So taking it over to a, a more macro picture, looking at uh, Brexit, which is obviously in, massively in the headlines at the moment. How does Brexit 
affect Angus Energy and, and what preparations are you making? Is it an opportunity? It, it's indeed. Looking at today and what's happening in the cabinet at the moment, it's indeed a, a highly volatile time, to put it that way. But no matter what the outcome of this, we have to work in, in, in the environment that's given to us. But what is, I think, is very important is energy security. And energy security has been, you know, hasn't received a lot of attention lately. And I think that's very wrong. I think especially for, you know, the, the geographic location of the UK where it is, energy security should be paramount, should be top of the agenda. Could you just explain what energy security is for us, Paul? Energy security means that you as a country need to have energy for everything that the country needs to heat your homes, for transportation, to produce stuff, to have the electricity, to to, 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 to use the internet, for example. You need electricity for anything to make, make our lives better. And because Great Britain is, is a collection of islands, um, there's only a limited amount of imports that you can do at any moment in time. Look at how close we came last year to basically running out of gas. Well, we're not really in the gas business, we're in the oil business, but also within the oil business, uh, there's been no investments to speak of in the whole industry since 2014. So the oil price is now on a slightly downwards trend again because of geopolitical issues. But what is completely underestimated by the market is that in order to give that supply to the market by OPEC, as was you know asked for by Trump, is that they basically completely eliminated any spare capacity. We now have less spare capacity in the system than we had back in 2008 when the oil price shot to $147 a barrel. There's not a huge amount of investment in the industry happening. So take a look two, three years out, where is the oil coming from? Well, <laughs> the Americans will use it for themselves. Asia and India will be guzzling it up. Where does that leave you know, Europe? Where does that leave Britain? I think it's very important for Britain uh, with a declining you know, production rate in the North Sea is that you know, we look at all different sources of energy and what's happening in the world can be you know, a great boon, both financially and also from an energy security point of view to, to, to Britain, especially in independent Britain. Do you think you've been given uh, decent support by the, uh, the authorities in terms of your uh, journey uh, in, in the wheel basin? We, we have developed a great relationship with all our regulators. But at this moment in time, you have to be honest, the, the, the cabinet has got other worries rather than, uh, than, than working at, a, at a, future, uh, you know, a, a future energy supply. Although I do think with the horse oil well test, with Balkan, uh, with us switching on Brockham shortly, that will probably change in the next few months. So... With oil prices and, uh, and where they are, they're obviously very volatile at the moment. And because you're someone who's got your hands dirty, actually working on a well, but you, you actually also are an analyst and understand the, the financial implications. What's your outlook for the oil price? Where, where do you see it going over the next five to 10 years? I, I think from where we are right now, the only way is up. Because look at it, about a billion, billion and a half people are trying to become, you know, have a middle class lifestyle, which we have enjoyed in, in, in Europe and America for the last 50 years. And it's all happening in Asia. So even though we're getting much more you know, fuel efficient in, in, in Europe and America, which is a great thing, and we should really applaud that, what we have is, is a billion and a half of new customers you know, in Asia that want to have the same lifestyle that we've been enjoying. And therefore, that oil needs to come from somewhere. We're right now, I think uh, a few weeks ago, for the first time, we crossed the 100 million barrels of a day usage mark. Which is which is tens of millions of barrels more than it was a few years ago, and that trend. So, so it's going up. So pe people yes. would say people would say that because of solar energy and uh, hydroelectric fuel and, and and all the other alternatives that 
the, and, and also with the governments wanting to reduce our, our use of, of petrol in cars, etc., that it, oil usage would be going down. But you're saying it's actually going up. In all the scenarios, in all the plausible scenarios, other than the, you know, we all go live in a cave again scenarios, <laughs> in all the scenarios, oil usage is going up. That's fascinating. I, I wouldn't have expected that to be the case. So let's take a situation where, as the trend is, you do get rid of petrol and diesel cars. How does that affect the oil price? It's it's part of a component, you know, uh, electrical cars. Electrical cars are great. Look at the, the current models that they're making. They're actually really cool cars. Uh, but that's going to be a, a very slow process. And even though if that process, you know, accelerates as, as it should be, what we have is a continued growth, growing demand for uh, for liquids, for hydrocarbons, as we're producing worldwide. That is simply going up because it is, electric cars are great, but they're just a small component of the total usage of oil. We use oil for everything. All the big tankers, aviation, uh, the petrochemical industry, Oil is used for everything, for a whole variety of sources. And we should, as a society, use all the energy you know, supplies that are available to us. But oil is simply a very large component of that and will be under any scenario for the decades to come. So presumably the electricity that we're putting into the electric cars has been created by a power station that's burning oil. Would that be correct? No, that, that, that's not really correct because then you go into, into the power business and power is, is historically, and especially in the UK, is, is gas. Uh, to limited demand coal and then nuclear and now wind and solar. Uh, I think the best description to 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 to, to, to describe the, the the hydrocarbon and the fossil fuel industry, uh, the oil industry that that, that Agus Energy is in, is as a friend of mine said last week. It's a it's a sunset industry, but it's a lovely sunset. <laughs> so we're talking about decades, and when you look over the lifetime of a company, you know, within the investment time horizon that that, that we're in, you know, in our lifespan. You know, I'm not worried that the, the demand for oil will evaporate. No, the opposite. I think that 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 the industry as a whole and, and 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 the world as a whole has really underestimated the lack of investment that's happened in the industry for the last three four years. And looking two three years ahead, the big question is where is it coming from? Well, we don't have an answer for that, and therefore I think the upside risk to the oil price is much higher than any near term downside risk. Do you think it's possible for us to be completely independent? I I don't think that should be the goal. Uh, to be fully energy independent, what you do want to have is flexibility. You want to have choice because we would be more than happy if our oil is sold and, and goes to Asia because the traders that sell our oil, they can get a higher price for it down there. But we should also have the choice that if we want it here and we decide to keep it here, we keep it here. Well, I just want to touch on the, the recent fundraise that you got away. I think it was two million pounds. Uh, and just run us through that and the idea behind and the and the timing behind that. Yeah, we looked at our uh, at our business plan. Um, we've got a few business development ideas we want to discuss with you in the future. Um, we want to switch Brockham on. Uh, we have uh, we have the funds to switch Brockham on. Uh, but what is also happening is that the uh, Oil and Gas Authority, before they give the final stamp, says, you know, you can go ahead, you can commission it well, you can go ahead. They do a financial, you know, a capacity check. So what we needed is a little bit of fat on the bones, you know. We, we don't need it, but you know, for any unforeseen circumstance and everything, you've got the fat on the bone. So that is what this, this placing is ensuring, business development and fat. And will that it, see you through to production? Oh, oh, absolutely, because the moment we switch Brockham on, bomb, it's done. We're in production. Um, and, then and then also... And then, and then there's no need for a, a placing uh, for, for, an, for an extended period. Is that is that the case? Is that what... 
shareholders should think? Now take a step back. As, as, a, as a CEO of a company, you can never say we're not, not, not going to do a plastic. I might have a wonderful business opportunity for you in, 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 in the next couple of months. And, you know, we would do that with the placing. So I cannot say to you, oh, we're not going to do a placing. If we leave the company at a status quo, then Brocken Production, you know, would provide all the funds. But I wouldn't like to manage a company and I wouldn't like to be a shareholder of a company that's just going to sit on the production of a single well or, you know, multiple wells at Brocken and, and then lay back. They call it a lifestyle company. I would actually want to create additional value for the company. So yeah, yeah, I, I was leading into actually just say because the two million seemed to be, I mean, I, it seemed to me, Obviously, from a rather armchair observer, uh, you could have raised three or four million, and the market would have been, you know, reasonably happy with that. So it was just, it was actually, you know, there was demand. There was actually demand for your stock, uh, and still is, obviously, at that time. Yeah, no, we we were we were more than happy with the two. We we didn't need to raise more. Just for the layman, you are you're raising some money because you want to invest in future oil fields. Is that correct? Business development, we call it. Yes. So there's a few opportunities that we're pursuing that we believe could create quite significant value to the shareholders. Doing a due diligence on them and, 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 and looking at them, they, they cost money. Fantastic. Okay. So can you tell us where you see next areas of interest or is that kind of state secret so you're not allowed to discuss anything about that? No, we've always, we've always been very clear with our uh, with uh, with our strategy already since the, since the IPO. You know, we, we're an onshore-focused company. And we, we focus on value development opportunities, opportunities, appraisal, not exploration, but appraisal development opportunities where we can uh, we create value that's been overlooked by, by other parties. So no, we've been very clear about that. And we, we have made several uh, you know acquisitions since our IPO that built on that. They've all been focused on Shore UK. Uh, what we started out was Brockham and Litzy. We added uh, an interest in Homewood, which is next door to Brockham. And most importantly, earlier this year, we uh, we acquired a 25% stake in Balkham and became the operator there. We became the operator there in July. And uh, in September, we uh, we did the well test. And uh, no, that also was another piece of the puzzle of opening up the wheel basin. And uh, that, that, that strengthened our theory that it is indeed a hybrid reservoir. And all over that area, you should be able to produce, you know, commercial hydrocarbons. Yeah, I just wanted to actually just underline that for the point, because you were saying about onshore being much easier than offshore, which obviously it is. Uh, what is your sort of rough cost per barrel um, relative to the oil price? We have made a statement earlier where we roughly spend $20, $25 a barrel on OPEX and refinery cost and transportation cost. The more we produce, the lower that number gets, the less we produce, you know, the number goes slightly up. Uh, but roughly that is our internal calculation in order to uh, to say how much it actually costs to get out of the ground. So at, 80, that, so at $80 a barrel, you were laughing at even at 60 or 55, you're, you're still still chucking. Well, well let's, let's run through a scenario. Let's let's tie it into what, what, what Horsell announced yesterday. Yeah. So Horsell announced yesterday that they produced from one zone uh, an average of 342 barrels of oil per day. Well, we're in a $67 oil price environment if I look at the screen. So that would give you roughly 40 barrels of income. Uh, that equates to, we own 65% of Brockhamet, so net to Angus I'm talking about now, that is $270,000 a month from one well, from one zone in that well. $270,000 a month. That is if you you know do that, if you sustain that rate for 12 months, it's $3.3 million a year. It's about two and a half million pounds from one zone, from one well. So yeah, I have to be honest. I, I thought a share price reaction and I was like, guys, this is really, really a good result because 
one well, one zone, two and a half million pounds a year in gross income. Well, I mean, the, pro- the problem you have is that Man- Manchester United football players earn more than that, so the people are obviously <laughs> people are obviously not that impressed. <laughs> no, because it is a hybrid reservoir, you should be able to replicate that result in 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 most zones there in that in that real place. So. Paul, tell us a bit about how technology has changed through the time that you've been involved in the oil and gas business. So from the days of when you actually got your hands dirty to now, what what have been the big developments? Well, the big developments on the technology side have primarily been around efficiency, because this is not an industry that is now doing things radically different than they were doing them 50 years ago. They've just become much more efficient at it. Uh, So, for example, with drilling, a well that, you know, back when I was working in Northern Africa, would cost them three months to drill. With current understanding of geology and drill bits, they can probably drill that same well in about a week and a half uh, if you have the right drilling equipment. And most of that investment has all taken place in Northern America. Now, if you take a step forward and you look at the UK, what we'd like to do in the future in the UK, we would also like to get those rigs that are more silent, that are more efficient and can drill the wells faster and therefore cheaper into the UK. Right now, we have a lot of you know legacy equipment in the UK, but that is going to change into the future. Also, subsurface-wise, uh, I'm a wireline engineer, so I made the you know I, I, I render tools that make the maps that that people then use to analyze what is in the ground, and that is exactly what we did at uh, at Brockham because when we drilled the side track of the well that we're going to put into production shortly, they the idea was after the Horsell well test in 2016, it's like. Well, it only could have flowed at 1,300 barrels a day if it is a fractured reservoir. But no geologist had even contemplated that before that. So we were like, okay, the only way to find out if we actually make like an image, a photograph of the well. So one of the new tools that got developed in the last few years was a a, a, a sonic tool, makes it like an ultrasound image. And it basically gives you in oil-based mud, you know, oil-based mud, you cannot see anything, but in oil-based mud, it makes the picture of our borehole. So when, after we drilled the, the well, we now have a beautiful picture, it's on our website, of all the fractures that are in the Kimmeridge. And therefore we came to the conclusion, it's like, hey, of that 400 meter Kimmeridge zone, 200 meters of which is naturally fractured. We can see it on the image block. And now what we're gonna do when we commission those well, we're gonna perforate those fractured zones and flow from all of it. And that is how technology is helping us produce from a layer of oil that historically, for very sound scientific reasons, has been ignored. And now we're looking at it, hey, with this new additional information, it's actually, you know, a, a very, hopefully very prolific reservoir. So you've got a, you've got a, like a 3D ultrasound in, in terms of the uh, uh, what you, what's underground these Cor- days? Correct, yes. And so before they didn't realize that, that it was there or they thought it was there, but they didn't think they could get to it. Is that if that's if that's a simplification of it? This, the simplification of it is that it, 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 we, as soon as you start speaking with a geologist, it becomes much more complex. <laughs> uh, first of all, they didn't think it was mature enough to generate the oil. Well, we did a lot of research on that and we found out that there's a there's a very specific reason for it, why the the, the, the maturity estimates were, were uh, underestimating it. And it was still maturity means that is the right temperature and pressure to cook, you know, the, the, the organic matter into hydrocarbons. And uh, what we now see is that the vast majority of the wheeled basin has actually been under the, the right conditions to produce the hydrocarbons, as you saw from you know the oil that we produced at Balkum, the sample that we got at uh, Litzi, and you know now 
342 barrels a day from 40 APIO from a single you know, horse sale well. So the, the maturity analysis, that is now covered. That was one of the reasons why it was overlooked. And the other reason why it was overlooked is that the, the first people that drilled the well there, uh, it's, it's an interbedded limestone, which is a reservoir. That's where, for example, all of Saudi Arabian oil is coming from. It's coming from limestone reservoirs. Interbedded with the claystone, with the shale, which is the source rock, which is where the, the oil is coming from. And this is all nasty stuff to drill, because if you drill through it, it wants to collapse in itself. If you drill it with water, you get big washouts. It's, it's, if you're a driller, it's, 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 it's not easy to drill through. So therefore, people wanted to drill through it fast. And when they looked at the limestone, which could be a potential reservoir under the old analysis, it's a super tight rock, which is completely correct. But because it's fractured, the oil is in the fractures. And that's what the reservoir is. So you have some in, in the rock itself, and, 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 and the majority have, you've got in the fractures. So it's a complex system. So it was easy to overlook, and there were other layers that people were going for. And so you can take this, presumably, this 3D uh, ultrasound technology and look at other areas in the UK and, and find similar results. That is not an unreasonable assumption that you could do that, because if we can do something like this in the wheelbase, and where I've been fully focused, uh, there is... You know, now you need to really speak with geologists, but basically what you need to do is you need to go to some of those old wells, rework them, and, and see if, you know, those, those same layers that we have in the wheel are somewhere up north. They might be in the Midlands, but uh, right now we think the vast majority, and, and, and that's where most of our resources are right now going, it's in the wheel. We'll be so busy there that, uh, that we're, we're not looking up there at the moment. But it's not unreasonable to think that something similar could happen. Okay, fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'd really love to get your view on the oil market in the future. So hopefully we'll have you back on the show in the future. No, Paul, would love to. Yeah, if, uh, if you want to have a general industry comment, uh, then uh, happy to join in and uh, give my two cents. That's fantastic. And Zach, as always, thank you so much for your questions and have a fantastic weekend till the next one. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Paul. It's been great to talk. And people will join us quite soon. Cheers, guys. Hey, have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. You too, Paul. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.